Well, this is probably a story that you have not heard before out of Scripture, unless you are in my introduction to Old Testament class, because we covered it this week. It is one of those stories that just kind of gets thrown in, in the midst of a whole bunch of other things going on. In fact, I love, in my own personal Bible, it's like at the far uh, right-hand corner, down at the bottom, almost to that part where you like flip the page and miss the story entirely. But it's a really important story about King David, and we're going to study it this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll look at this word together. Gracious God, thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. So here's the question I want you to think about this morning. How much, how much, and and I'm looking for a, a financial number, How much is your spiritual health worth to you? Now, according to Forbes magazine, we can quantify the value that we place on our physical health. In 2014, Americans spent close to $3 trillion on health care. To give you some perspective on that, that is about 10,000 times our annual church budget. That's how much Americans spend on their physical health. And though we grumble about it and we bemoan it, we recognize that health care is valuable, that it enhances the quality of our lives. We also hold some stigma about health care. For example, when we hear free clinic, we start picturing a very different level of care than when we picture Mayo Clinic. Anything that is free doesn't appear to have the same value as something that requires us to give of our resources. So this morning I want you to think about how that same principle applies to God and to his church. We have this story that's tucked away in 2 Samuel 24, and in this story we once again meet King David. By the time that we meet him here, he has already had a very, very successful military career as a king. He has done an excellent job despite some serious personal moral failings. But the people really like him. And for the most part, he and God have held a a pretty decent relationship. God has consistently and faithfully delivered David from his enemies. And on more than one occasion, God has already forgiven and even redeemed David from his sin. And David, for his part, even from a pretty young age, has trusted God for the guidance of of the people and for his own leadership skills. But for whatever reason, we don't know, this particular time is different. And again, for whatever reason, David decides that he is going to conduct a census of all of the people. God had always told David this was unnecessary, Because regardless, regardless of what the enemy numbers, the battle is the Lord's. And the Lord will provide for the defeat of the people, regardless of how many people David had in his party. But David, perhaps in a a moment of weakness, perhaps in a moment of doubt, decides that he should count up all the people anyway, just so he knows what kind of resources he's got. The issue is not that David conducted the the census. The issue is, David didn't trust the Lord. 
But afterwards, says verse 10, David was stricken to the heart because he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, I pray that you take away the guilt of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now, by the time that we meet David in this story, we have well over 800 years of Israelite history. And throughout those 800 years, at least, at least, at least once a year, every single year, usually more than that, the leader of the Israelites, whoever it was at any given time, would remind the people to trust God. This was a big one, a big one on the Ten Commandments. Trust God, to look towards God for their help and salvation. So it's not like David had no clue what he was doing. What it's like is when somebody has a heart attack after eating cheeseburgers and fries for 30 years. You cannot tell me that nowhere in a 30-year span of time would a doctor not have said to a person, you know, that's really not a good idea. Probably not the best thing for your health. You really should not be doing this. But if you've been told and you do it anyway, before very long, you're going to wind up in a cardiac care unit. And you feel foolish because you had heard, you did know better, but you did it anyway. So you wind up in the hospital at the mercy of the doctors and nurses, hoping and praying that God will get you through it. Well, God is going to be faithful to David. And he is going to pull David through his foolishness, but it's not without a cost. Just like it's not without a cost to be a patient in a hospital. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's prophet, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you, choose one of them, and I will do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he asked him, Shall three years of famine come to you on your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to the one who sent me. And then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into human hands. So God now offers David three consequences for his behavior. He can choose from three years of famine, three months to run from his enemies as they pursue him, or three days of pestilence, plague in the land. David chooses the plague. And although it doesn't say why, there's, there's potentially two likely reasons. The first one was that it was going to be limited. We're only talking about three days here. And the second is that David would rather suffer at the hands of the Lord, who he has experience with as being merciful and gracious, than to suffer at the hands of his enemies, for whom he knows will kill him. So nonetheless, he chooses the plague, and the plague did wipe out thousands in a very short amount of time. There is a cost for foolishness. So verse 15, the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from that morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 of the people died, from Dan to Beersheba. But when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem, Jerusalem would have been the capital city at this point to destroy it, 
The Lord relented concerning the evil and said to the angel who was bringing destruction among the peoples, It is enough. It's enough. After 70,000 people, it's enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then, was then at that moment by the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was destroying the people, he said to the Lord, I did this. I'm the one that sinned. And I alone have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and my father's house. Seventy thousand people at the beginning of this plague. We didn't even get the full three days in, and we've got 70,000 people. That's more than the entire population of Bradenton. Gone. Just wiped out. But God calls off the angel of death out of his great mercy. At which point, David turns back to the Lord and asks that if there's going to be further judgment, that it be on him and on his family. And here we're going to get God's response in verse 18. That day Gad came to David and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. Following Gad's instructions, David went up as the Lord had commanded. So what happens here is David confessed his sin, and I just, I really want to reiterate, his sin is not that he did the census. His sin is that he just did not trust in God, that God would be faithful and do what God has promised. So he confesses his sin, and then he turns back to the Lord. And oftentimes we think, you know, if we just say we're sorry, then we can go on our merry way. We just say sorry, and it's all good, we're all covered. But the story doesn't unfold like that. David says sorry, and God gives him instructions to build an altar. Because there is a sacrifice in the reconciliation process. It costs something. At the outset, it looks like this is going to cost David some time. That's the first thing we notice, because now he's got to build an altar to the Lord. We don't know how elaborate this altar is. I don't know how many of us have had to build an altar. But at the very least, we're looking at a complete Saturday, just shot. Completely and totally shot, consumed with the building of this altar. So there's time involved. And David's first step is to locate the altar on the threshing floor of a Jebusite named Arunah, which means that this threshing floor is owned by somebody. And the first thing David's got to do is figure out how to get control of that property. Well, when Arunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming towards him. And Arunah went out and prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. Arunah said, why has the Lord my king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord so the plague may be averted from the people. Well, then Aronah said to David, Let my lord the king take up, uh, take up and offer what seems good to him. Not only is he going to give him the threshing floor, he says, Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yoke of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aronah says, I, I will give to you. And Aronah said to the king, May the Lord your God respond favorably to you. This is going to be a great day for David. Things have really turned around. He was already going to have to spend his Saturday completing this altar. But it appears now he's not going to have to spend any of his own money to do this project. Now, to liken this to our our 30-year cheeseburger heart attack victim, it would be like saying that 
that after rehabilitation, Fresh Market calls up and says, you know, it's, it's hard enough that you had to go through rehab. Here's a lifetime supply of gift cards for you to buy healthy fruits and vegetables going forward. But you know what? As many of us have experienced in other things, sometimes, sometimes you have to have a little skin in the game to make something valuable to you. This is why season ticket holders get so frustrated when their teams lose for entire seasons. The ticket holders pay lots of money to see their team play, not to sit around all season and watch them lose. If the Bucks lose, as is now their habit, I'm, and I'm watching the game at home, I don't lose a whole lot, right? I can change the channel. But if I pay for a ticket and I pay for parking and I pay for a hot dog, and I spend my time there, and they totally botch the whole thing, I've lost something in the process. It is always easier to walk away from a commitment if your own money isn't on the line. This is why when when Pastor Reed sets up the summer mission trips, do you know that before the parents even see a number for what what their family is going to have to put in, the church has already already, before the parents even see that number, already paid half of the trip of that, co- half the cost of that trip. So the church put in some money. When Reed asks for a non-refundable deposit, what he's saying is, put some skin in the game. This is a big commitment because if you walk away, the church is still going to lose a whole bunch of money. Now back to David, who's just been offered a total pass on having to put money into God's project. Let's see how he responds. But the king said to Aronah, No, but I will buy them from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. The church is one of the very few places left in society where people actually fully expect fully expect, sometimes demand, but fully expect to get something for nothing. Because it's the church, and the church should do that. Because it's God, and and he should do that. Nobody ever walks into the dentist's office, has to wait for an hour for their appointment, has a root canal, and then says to the dentist, but you know, you're a dentist. You should do that. And I should not have to pay for it. Nobody ever does that. Imagine walking into a lawyer's office, and you're going to ask this lawyer to defend your case. But you know what? After you talk to him the first time, he doesn't return your phone calls. He shows up unprepared. You're not even sure he really knows your name. But miraculously, he gets you off. Are you going to walk up to him and say, you know, you chose. I mean, it was your choice to be a lawyer because you wanted to help people. That's what you should be doing. And as a result, because you're getting to do what you wanted to do, I should not have to pay you for it. Nobody's ever going to do that. Nobody's ever, ever going to do that. But in the church and to God, we do it all the time. All the time. We expect that because it's the church, we shouldn't have to pay to get counseling or, or to receive food or to have our kids educated in the faith, or or to have music, or occasionally a decent sermon. The church 
And, and God should just do that out of the goodness of their hearts. And if the church or God doesn't respond to our need or our desire with great immediate urgency, then, then, then there is no grace. There's no grace the way that there is in every other aspect of society. So far too often, far too many of us treat the church as consumers, yet we're unwilling to pay the price of consumers. It's a double standard that doesn't equally apply anywhere else in our daily living. So David didn't take the deal, even though it was a pretty sweet one. And he didn't take it because he wanted to express the value of the forgiveness and the redemption and the grace of God. Those things were valuable to him. God had been faithful to David even in times of great trouble. God had forgiven David more than you and I ever, ever would have put up with. And David saw value in that. He saw value in relationships. So he wanted to put his skin, his money in the game. It wasn't just his time that went into the altar. It was his money because God had done, was doing, and would continue to do something valuable in David's life. And that was worthy of financial support. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being. So the Lord answered his supplication for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be awesome if everything, everything in life was free? If you could just walk onto a car lot and drive away with any car that you wanted for free. Or you could go into a five-star restaurant, order everything on the menu, even if you're not going to eat it. And when the bill comes, free. What value do you think those things would have over time? If you don't have to put any of your resources towards them, if you can just take them or, or leave them and walk away, what value do they really have? Things and experiences in life obtain value because they come with sacrifice. Children are valuable because of the incredible sacrifices it takes to bring them into this world and then to raise them in it. Our freedom as a country is valuable because it was paid for with the countless lives of those who gave them up so that we might have the freedoms that we enjoy today. God's love and grace was so valuable to David, so much so that it cost him something to build that altar. So I'm going to ask you again, how valuable is your faith to you? And how valuable is the place that nurtures and grows and encourages that faith? If you've been treating it like it's all free, then the truth is, it, it must not be that valuable. Kind of like the free t-shirts that you get at the Marauders game, or the free pens that you get at the bank. You know, those are the first things, at least at the Lee house, that get tossed in the trash. I can't remember the last time that any member of my household just nonchalantly threw a diamond ring into a trash can. Or 
threw out a new car just because we felt like it. See, those things, they cost us something. So they must be valuable. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that there are times in each of our lives when we have treated your church, your house, when we've treated you like a free consumer commodity. And we confess, Lord, that it's often embarrassing to admit that and to say that out loud. So we ask for your forgiveness. But more importantly, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to think about it differently. That you would help us to see the value that comes from being part of the community of faith, the value that comes from having a relationship with you. And seeing that value, that we would treat it the same way that we treat all the other valuable things in our lives, with sacrifice and care. In your name we pray. Amen.